On this week's edition of New York Now, July is Disability Pride Month. We speak with Kimberly Hill, New York's first ever chief disability officer, a position that advocates for New Yorkers with disabilities. And later, ever since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, there's been a lot of confusion about access to abortion across the country. We tell you where things stand in New York and how that decision affects things here. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. More extreme heat overwhelmed parts of New York this week, and while next week looks better, it's still going to be pretty hot. But this weather has some New Yorkers asking, has summer always been like this, or is this climate change? And while summer is always hot, Experts in climate science agree that our weather patterns are changing, causing more extreme storms and some of the hottest days on record. So in response, advocates made a fresh push this week for the NY Heat Act. It's a bill that would cap utility bills for low and middle income consumers at 6% of their income. It would also end a rule that requires utility companies to build new gas hookups for new customers at no charge. That cost is instead spread across all ratepayers, driving costs up. Both parts of the bill are intended to lower energy costs for consumers who see those bills spike in times of extreme weather, like the heat we're seeing now. State Senator Liz Krueger sponsors the bill, which is passed in the Senate, but not the Assembly. Some of the impacts we're seeing, because we're still dominantly um, dependent on oil and gas, and we have to get off it as fast as possible. So when people say, there's not a rush, look out your window, read the weather reports coming in from around the world. Some utility companies are against the bill, saying it would drive up costs for them. Lawmakers say they'll consider the bill again in next year's legislative session and staying now in state government. You might not know this, but July is Disability Pride Month. That's to mark the Americans with Disabilities Act, which passed in 1990. It's a law that many Americans and New Yorkers don't always have at top of mind, but it's really important. The ADA banned discrimination against people with disabilities, and that means everywhere from housing to employment and a lot more. And because of that law, accessibility for people with disabilities has improved, but there's still a long way to go. That includes here, in New York, where about one out of every four adults has a disability, according to the CDC. And until last year, New York's work on accessibility was scattered across multiple agencies and had a complicated history. But last February, that changed when a new law created the Office of the Chief Disability Officer. And to learn all about it and how they're working to make New York more accessible, we spoke with Kim Hill, the first person ever to take on that role. Kim, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. So I want to talk about this position because it's a new position. So your work is relatively new. You were chosen for it last year. Tell me what the Office of the Chief Disability Officer does. So there's a couple of different ways I can answer this question. We are required by legislation to do certain things. Um, but I think what is most important for all New Yorkers to know is that we are the open door for people with all different types of disabilities. Mm. And our two main goals are to be breaking down the silos that exist among all of the agencies so that all of the agencies are 
talking and, and knowing what each other is doing, and also making sure that New York is as accessible, inclusive, and integrated as possible. What do you think that looks like from your perspective in terms of, um, is it just compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or is it so much more than that? It's so much more. I mean, the ADA was groundbreaking, right, yeah. in its time. And 33 years later, there's still a lot of work to be done. And out of the ADA have come other things like the U.S. Supreme Court Olmstead ruling, which is a large component of what our office does um, as chair of New York's Most Integrated Setting Coordinating Council, which is the Olmstead entity in New York State. We are required to ensure that New Yorkers live in mo the most integrated setting appropriate to their needs and that New York has a plan to make sure that that happens. So if you think about all the different ways that someone lives their daily life, it affects housing, it affects home care and health care, it affects mm. transportation, jobs, employment, recreation. So we can kind of touch into every state agency. We work with all of the portfolios that exist within the governor's administration. It's really pretty much everywhere. Yeah, it's a really big job. Like yeah. You cover a lot of ground. We do. And you look at a lot of people. You've been doing this for um, about a year and a couple of months. Uh, how has it gone so far? It's been amazing. Yeah. It's honestly, it's been a dream come true for me. I've been doing disability policy for almost 25 years and to be able to do it at the state level with Governor Hochul, the first female governor in New York State, being a part of her historical administration, that in and of itself has been a whirlwind. It's been a dream. Um, but to be working under a governor that truly cares about people with disabilities and wants to see them integrated into normal life makes my job so much easier to do um, because she's so committed to it. So it's been amazing. This office, uh, I should mention, um, I mentioned it was new, but it kind of has a history in different iterations. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about, for, for people that don't know, why is this role so important? Yeah, so I can speak from where I came from. When sure. I first started in state government in 1994, there used to be an office called the Office of the Advocate for Persons with Disabilities. And they were kind of absorbed into the Commission on Quality of Care and Advocacy for People with Disabilities. And slowly over time, as people retired, that office just kind of disappeared. In that time, advocates realized that there was really no entity overseeing all different types of disabilities. I mean, right. we have several agencies in New York State, and the portfolio that I work under covers all of our O agencies. We call them like the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities, Office for Mental Health, OASIS, that type of thing. But there's no one and has been no one to truly pay attention to the needs of people with just physical disabilities, mm -hmm. people with hearing disabilities, people with vision disabilities. So that's what makes our office unique is that we are really the only ones purely focusing on those issues while also working with the OPWDD and OMH and all the other agencies. Yeah, I was going to ask you about kind of like the, the greater area outside of your office. So you have OPWDD, which you mm -hmm. work with. Um, do you also get into uh, people maybe with mental health conditions, things like that? So within our work with Olmstead, I mean, that covers all people with disabilities. Mm. So since that's such a big part of our job, mm. I consider our population all people with disabilities. So we're dealing with mental health issues, we're dealing with IDD issues, but that really focuses more, it's more focused on by our 
um, human services and mental hygiene portfolio. So we work together. Our team falls within their team. We're constantly talking and working together. But because the physical and sensory disabilities aren't covered by anyone else, we kind of take the lead on those issues. You know, you're looking at this topic every day. You have since you started this job. What do you see as the top issues for people with physical and sensory disabilities? There's a lot, and it's a hard question to answer because depending on your disability, the answer might be different. Sure. But the governor's identified employment as a massive goal across all disability types. So that is something that we focus on very much. We also are constantly focusing on how to improve home care, the workforce crisis in New York, because people need home care and then you move on to housing. There's nowhere near enough accessible and affordable housing. Yeah. So once we cover those three things, you know, that the people have the care they need, they have the housing that they can live in, and hopefully a job that they want to go to, then do we have the transportation to get them there? Then are the recreational activities that they want to participate in available and accessible and integrated? So it, it doesn't end. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. To be honest with you, um, when your position was created last year and announced, it made me think about this whole issue area very differently in terms of um, my experiences in my own life. Uh, I was visiting friends down in New York City who lived in Brooklyn and we were getting on the train to go up to Manhattan and the, it wasn't an accessible stop. And I thought at the time that that was kind of a rarity, that there would be a stop that's inaccessible. I found out through my friends that there are actually many, many stops that are yeah. inaccessible. I mean, with thinking of transportation, that's a huge issue area. So it is. with all of these things being such big parts of people's lives, how do you move forward and try to find solutions? Like, how do you strategize that in your office? Well, we try to prioritize, try to have like five priorities at a time because yeah. we can't do it all at once. And we are a small but mighty office. <laughs> um, so we do try to take a breath and take things one at a time. Um, we also listen to the advocates that we work with and invite into our office as much as possible. And by listening to their priorities, they generally align with ours. Um, it helps us figure out what we're working on and what we're moving to next. But also because we're in charge of develop, developing this Olmstead plan, you know, we're having to put it into like a structure and looking at things from how, you know, what is the defined problem? What are the proposed suggestions. Sure. So it kind of helps us keep organized while also making sure that we're not letting certain things fall off the table. Sure. Another part of your job, or I guess basically your whole job, <laughs> is to ensure compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. I will say I was a little embarrassed not to know that it passed in 1990. It felt more recent than I yeah. thought it was, to be honest with you. When I think of the ADA in my head, that was something that we passed in the 70s, not in 1990. <laughs> So when you look at that, knowing that we have 33 years since then, there's been a lot of work towards it. How do you approach that part of the job? And I guess, can you give us a sense of how out of compliance we may be? I think the big things people have solved, right? I mean, anything that's been built since 1990 is supposed to be accessible. Supposed to be. Um, they, they aren't always, but for the most part in buildings for places of public accommodation. You can get in the door, there's elevators. The devil's in the details when you start to talk about measurements and yeah. doorways and 
is a bathroom entirely accessible the way that it should be? You know, there's always going to be room for growth. And just like you mentioned, New York City, I mean, they are in the process. A huge investment has been made to make the subway stations accessible. Yeah. Um, and it's clearly going to take some time. And when you look around New York City, there's constant construction and same upstate. Every time something new is built, you know, something's taken down, we have to make sure that things are staying accessible. And so I, I think it's going to be ever growing. And, you know, every day we get more and more into compliance. But there's always going to be smaller places, places that aren't familiar, have never been exposed to a disability population that aren't as familiar. And so we take them one step at a time. You know, if I'm a New Yorker, and I think about this all the time in terms of the subway stops, and I'm thinking about this as I'm entering businesses and things like that, if somewhere is out of compliance or could use a more accessible structure or, you know, they are, the doorways aren't wide enough, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, if I'm somebody who wants to maybe let you know or the state know about that, what would I do? You could email us. We have an email. It's accessibility at exec.ny.gov. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Um, we want people to reach out to us. Um, through this email, we've heard from a lot of people, some on access issues. We actually just got one a couple of days ago, and we're working with the town and the independent living center that is mm -hmm. in that town to make these changes and with the state agency that's involved. So you know, because we are housed in the governor's office, it gives us access to all of the state agencies. Yeah. We can pretty quickly get to the right people that need to make the changes. So far, people have been very um, open, happy, and actually eager to help. I think a lot of it is people just still don't know, even 33 years later. That's what I think, too. And that was why I brought up the subway mm -hmm. stops thing, is I think that this is an area that a lot of people just don't think about in their daily lives. Yeah. But in reality, if I'm going to the grocery store and that door is not accessible for somebody who needs food, that's a problem. Right. Given that, you cover such a wide area of issues. Um, you'll be going into your second full year mm -hmm. soon. Um, do you have enough resources in the office to do all of this? Because <laughs> it is such yeah. a wide That's responsibility. A, a fun question. So my team, who right now is made up of a gentleman named Ben, he's our senior policy advisor. My EA, Kim Butchen, keeps us all together. Um, and we have two interns. Well, one is a fellow from Harvard, and we have an intern from the University of Denver. So like I said, small but mighty. Um, we do have three jobs that are posted right now, so we are growing. Very excited about that. So I encourage anyone who's watching to look at LinkedIn on the governor's, um, the executive chamber website um, to seek out those jobs. And what is really important about our office is that we are looking for people with disabilities to hire. So I hope that we can continue to grow. I mean, I know we're growing by three jobs in the next few months, so that's exciting. I don't know that anyone in the executive chamber would ever say we have enough people to do our job. <laughs> you know, it's a big state and there's a lot of different priorities. So um, I'm really proud of what we've built so far and looking forward to what's coming in the future. Yes, you have quite a bit to do. <laughs> Kim Hill, New York's Chief Disability Officer, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And if you missed that email address at the end there, it was accessibility at exec.ny.gov. But turning now to a new edition of On the Bill, where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about 
otherwise. This week, we're doing a follow-up on A75B, also called the 9-11 Notice Act. In the years after 9-11, people who were close to the attack, like first responders and workers, were getting sick and developing long-term health problems. So Congress approved new funding in 2010 to help people pay for treatment. That set up the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. But to this day, a lot of people who worked in the area and might have gotten sick have not filed a claim. That brings us to the 9-11 Notice Act. It's a bill that would require businesses with 50 or more employees to tell past and present workers they could qualify for the fund. And after we told you about the bill, it passed the state legislature unanimously this year. That means it's now up to Governor Kathy Hochul to either sign the bill or veto it. Michael Barish is an attorney who's represented 9-11 victims and their families for the past two decades. While over 85% of the first responders have enrolled in the World Trade Center Health Program, less than 10% of the downtown office workers, students, teachers, and residents are enrolled. They simply don't know that they are entitled to the benefits. And this bill goes a long way to educating people. That's all we're asking. We'll let you know when the governor makes a decision. But moving on now to the issue of abortion in New York. When the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, it caused a lot of confusion about access to abortion. A lot of people didn't know if abortion was still legal in their state. And in the past year, some states have passed some really strict limits on abortion. And that's because it's been the first time in five decades that that was even an option for those states. But in New York, that hasn't happened, and it's not expected to, at least anytime soon. And that got us thinking about how confusing all of this is for everyone. So in this new installment of our civic series, New York And, we explore the topic of abortion and how different levels of government play a role. Welcome to New York And Abortion Law. I'm Alexis Young. For decades, reproductive health care has been a contentious political issue in the U.S., particularly when it comes to abortion. And when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in 2022, the issue gained national attention. But what does the overturning of Roe v. Wade mean, and what do abortion laws look like at the state level in New York? Let's take a look. Roe v. Wade was a 1973 federal Supreme Court decision which guaranteed the right to an abortion with certain stipulations. States were limited in the restrictions they could put on abortion because the procedures were constitutionally protected at the federal level. In the decades after Roe was enshrined, there was a constant struggle between settled federal law and states who wanted the ability to self-regulate. In 1992, the Supreme Court heard Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which they again upheld the right to an abortion, but also gave states more room to regulate it. In 2022, the Supreme Court heard Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which they examined a Mississippi law that placed certain time restrictions on abortion procedures. The court decided the Mississippi law is legal while also overturning Roe v. Wade. The result of this is not a federal abortion ban, but rather a removal of the constitutional right to an abortion. With Roe officially overturned, states now have more room to apply the law as they see fit, which has resulted in greater restrictions and bans across the country. 
But what does this mean for New York? What do abortion laws look like in our state? The right to an abortion was legalized in New York in 1970 and then reinforced by the Reproductive Health Act, which passed in 2019. As it currently stands, people in New York have the right to an abortion within the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. Abortion procedures are allowed outside the 24-week window if the fetus is no longer viable or if the patient's health is at risk. This law applies to both New York residents and visitors. So the protections are pretty straightforward. We have laws on the books that allow people to get abortion procedures with certain restrictions in place. But there's a growing movement to further advance these protections, which would be done by enshrining the Equal Rights Amendment into the state constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, would expand a variety of anti-discriminatory safeguards and constitutionally protect the right to an abortion in New York. But what's the difference between a right that is codified by law versus a right that is protected by the state constitution? We asked Catherine Bodie and Jenna Lauder, two legal experts from the New York Civil Liberties Union. When we say that the right to abortion is codified in state law, what we mean is that New York state's own statutes uh, provide an al alternative source of the right to an abortion. So New York law through state statute um, provides that abortion is legal here in New York state um, and not only legal, but protected as well. In order to amend the New York state constitution, you have to go through essentially a threefold process. So the legislature has to pass the amendment in two consecutive legislative sessions. And then the amendment goes on the actual ballot before the people for a referendum vote. The constitution is more difficult to change. It is less uh, subject to political wins. Um, and uh, certainly we have seen um, strong wins over the past uh, decade or so. Supporters want abortion rights enshrined in the state constitution because it would then become more difficult to remove them. But opponents don't want that for the same reason. Where does the ERA currently stand in the legal process? With respect to the ERA, um, that has now passed the legislature into consecutive sessions. Um, and the next step is for it to go before the people for a vote. If you are a New Yorker, you will be able to vote for or against the Equal Rights Amendment in the November 2024 election. So keep that in mind. So we know what the abortion situation is at the state level, and we know where the Supreme Court stands on the issue. But is it possible for abortion to become illegal in New York, even though there are state laws saying otherwise? We asked Catherine Bodie from NYCLU. If Congress passed and the president signed um, a uh, law that made abortion illegal across the country, um, then our, our a uh, rule of federalism where federal law is supreme to state law uh, would govern. Federalism is when a territory is presided over by multiple levels of government. For example, Rochester, New York has its own city government, which is subject to the laws of New York State's government, which is subject to the laws of the U.S. government. And the top of the food chain has final say with certain exceptions given by the U.S. Constitution. 
This is all to say a federal abortion ban or restriction would supersede state law. So at the risk of being too speculative, what would happen in that case? I think, you know, it's probably relatively safe to assume that whatever federal administration passes a nationwide abortion ban is also going to be fairly invested in enforcing that at the federal level. That said, there may be avenues for New York State to limit the extent to which it contributes to and supports prosecution under federal law. So for instance, New York might, under this scenario, explore ways that it could prohibit law enforcement prosecutors from facilitating uh, federal government efforts to arrest or investigate people who are involved in abortion care in New York and could direct state level prosecutors not to seek prosecution under federal anti-abortion charges. There is also another asterisk to consider when looking at New York's abortion laws, the laws of other states. One state's laws do not supersede another's. If Delaware decided that nobody could leave their house unless they were wearing a sparkly fanny pack, we in New York wouldn't have to worry about it unless we wanted to visit Delaware, in which case you'd need to strap up. So if someone was visiting New York to get abortion pills and were from a state where abortion is banned, they would need to go through the entire process and handle any aftercare or complications in New York before returning to their home state in order to minimize the risk of litigation or prosecution. There's a lot to take away from all this. The establishment of federal and state laws and the way they are enforced is in a frequent state of flux. The legal battle around the right to an abortion shows no sign of slowing down. Though through the fog, there is one constant. The majority of American people have supported the right to an abortion in some capacity for decades. Thanks for tapping in and until next time, be well, be good, and stay informed. And you can find more from our civic series on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. We'll see you next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.